As we come now to God's Word, if you'd like to read along with me, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. You can open either book or electronic device and turn to Philippians chapter 1. And as always, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, we know that you are the way and the truth and the life, and that your word is truth because it comes from you. Lord, as we come now before your word, would you help us to see, to understand, to believe, and to find rest in you. And guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Philippians in chapter 1. Uh, we'll start uh, in 19. We'll actually clip uh, the very, very end of 18 here, this last sentence, and then continue in 19 onward. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. If you were here with us last week, this is the exact same text that we read then. Uh, we focused on the first few lines there that Paul talks about, uh, this uh, will be for my deliverance. We know that in the context of Philippians, Paul's in prison. So on some level, he may have been talking about his deliverance from prison. But it's likely much more than that. Also his deliverance from even the effect of sin. But at least here he says that his deliver this will turn out from deliverance from, from shame. That in the end, he will not be left in disgrace because Christ will be honored, Christ will be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. So we talked about that last week. Uh, this week, I want to focus our attention, uh, for me and for us, on verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
This is one of the more familiar lines in Philippians, one of the most quotable. You, you can see these clipped out and put in a little a graphic to post on Facebook or print it on, on T-shirts. And there's a lot, really, in a small space here. This is uh, sort of like the Mary Poppins bag, that the more we reach into it, the more we can pull out. And I think it will help us to unpack this bag if we see just a little bit of the bigger picture of what he's saying around this sentence. In this part of his letter, Paul is really thinking out loud about the implications and outcomes of his own life and death. So even though he says here uh, that Uh, which he shall choose, I can't tell. So talking about which I shall choose, life or death, he's not deciding which one to pursue, life or death. Paul here is not considering taking his own life. Uh, This is not a suicidal confession. Uh, Paul knows that to take one's own life is harmful, incredibly harmful. And it is sin even. Uh, The sin of suicide, of course, can be forgiven in Jesus. Uh, There are some who teach otherwise, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that that sin is outside of the forgiveness of Jesus. But it is still sin. Paul knows that his life, his body, is not his own to do with as he wishes. So just as he doesn't have the right to take someone else's life on his own, we call that murder, he doesn't have the right to take his own life. He did not give himself life. He does not have the right to take his own life away. But that's not Paul's goal here anyway, to take his life away. He, He just knows that life and death is in God's hands, and he's contemplating his own life and death. So here we get to see a window into Paul's mind. What makes, what brings longing for him? What are his real desires? And he alternates as he discusses back and forth here between life and death. You can kind of see it if we go through the text just very briefly. Life is Christ, he says, and death is gain. And life means fruitful labor for me, but uh, death means I'll be with Christ. And and life is more necessary for you, Philippians, but death is far better for me. And he says that between these two, life and death, he says, I'm I'm hard-pressed. Where is that? Verse uh, 23, the beginning of hard-pressed. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Uh, Some translations translate that word hard-pressed, that I am torn between the two. And I don't think that's quite right. That doesn't quite get at the sense that Paul's after here. I know the old King James uh, translates this. I'm in a straight betwixt the two. I personally kind of like that. I mean, who says betwixt anymore? Uh, So we could say between the two, but uh, to be in a straight is fitting to the idea that Paul's after. A straight as in a water channel. So if you know the Bering Strait, 
which is that little strip of water between Alaska and, and Russia. And it's that connector between the Arctic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. It's a narrow waterway between two larger bodies of water. So Paul's not necessarily saying he's being torn apart here by that. He's saying he's actually being pressed, squeezed between life and death. Uh, it feels like he's in the place where the water is squished between the Arctic and the, and, and the Pacific. Perhaps you know that feeling to feel squeezed between life and death. I remember Nana, when she was still alive, at a very healthy 106, almost every time I would visit her, she would say, why won't God let me die? She wasn't angry, just wondering. Why won't God let me die? She is in a strait, in some sense, squeezed between life and death. Now, what's interesting about Paul's situation here is, is why he's squeezed, how exactly that plays out. He does not say that he's squeezed between life and death because he's facing the lesser of two evils. If you look at his comparison, he actually says he's squeezed between life and death because he's facing the better of two goods. If we just look at the summary sentence that we're focusing on, verse 21, to live is Christ, which is a great good, and to die is gain, he says. There's also good here. Now, it's very curious that he sees death as gain. Uh, he does not say that death is something to be avoided at all costs, nor does he necessarily say that death is something to be embraced for its own sake. And he does not say death is just an escape or a release. We know that some cultures and some religions see death that way, that the flesh or the life experience is bad and it needs to be transcended so death kind of gets rid of that bad sense. That's not Paul's perspective here. He says uh, that death is actually a gain. It's not less but more. So now the question for me and for us is, why? What does he mean by gain here? What exactly is gained here? Paul uses the language of gain letter, later in this letter. Where is it? In chapter 3. And I think this helps us. Chapter 3, he starts in verse 4 here. Paul writes, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here he just lists a bunch of things that some might consider uh, gain. He, he talks about his Jewishness, his culture, his heritage, his background, that he's basically from good family. 
And he, he talks about his zealousness, that he was uh, you know, passion, passionate about what he did. He had strong convictions, so he had good devotion. And, and then he talks about how he was right, pursuing righteousness under the law, that he was moral and obedient to the law, so he was a good person. But all these things that he says of good family, good devotion, good person, look how he follows up in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, all of these good things are worth nothing but a heap if I don't have Jesus. The gain of death then is Christ himself. He says that back in the section of, of, of chapter 20, or of chapter 1 that we looked at. Um, he says in verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I just want to die. I just want to depart. He says, I want to, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, and that's far better. One writer about this said, life with Jesus is not destroyed by death, but it's increased and enriched by death. Death, for a Christian, in other words, is a means of gain. There is more of Jesus. So that's why um, in an often used funeral text, John chapter 14, uh, if you've been to funerals uh, lately, you've likely heard these words. And Jesus says this, John chapter 14, starting in verse 1, just a few verses here. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus here talks about preparing a place for them, and this is a great source of hope and comfort and rest for the Christian. And, and, and sometimes we get the idea of mansions in heaven from this text, and, and maybe there are. I don't know what eternal mansions look like, but perhaps that's the case. At any rate, Jesus' point here, when he talks about the Father's house and many rooms and going to prepare a place, is not necessarily about houses. He's talking about the family of God, 
dwelling together with God. That the real prize of eternity are not houses crafted by HGTV and Pinterest. That even if the roads are lined with gold and the walls are covered with shiplap and every house has got a farm sink, just like every good HGTV house, the real prize is that we are with God intimately forever. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he says, I'll come and take you to myself. The greatest joy in the new heavens and the new earth then is to be with God. There's a line of a song I like that says, home is wherever I'm with you. It's usually about a husband and wife or a dating relationship. Home is wherever I'm with you. But heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, will be home because we are with God. And that will be gain. Now, that's a great comfort to a Christian. But there's also a big challenge in that. John Piper talks about this quite a bit in his book, uh, God is the Gospel in Comparison. It's a small book, and again, I love small books. If you can say a lot in a small space, and boy, I can actually get through it. Uh, it's harder to finish books. Um, but he writes this, some things that are helpful for us. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there. In other words, if eternity in heaven is without Jesus, would you still want it? Even if it had everything else that you've ever wanted. If eternal life has everything but Jesus, would it still be life to you? It's a heavy question. And I think we're helped a bit by Paul in wrestling through this in this sentence to live as Christ, to die as gain. Because as shocking as the second half of that sentence is, to die as gain, the first half is just as shocking. To live is Christ. Paul here is not saying Jesus is part of my life. He is not saying Jesus even is the source of my life. 
He's not saying Jesus is the afterlife. He is more than all those things. He says Christ is life. Christ is all of life. If you took Christ out of our lives, it would no longer be life. You would not recognize our life at all. In other words, Jesus is the way that we sum up our lives. He is the driving passion of our lives. There are lots of other ways that uh, people might finish the sentence to live as Christ. So to live is blank. We could put lots of things in there. Uh, to live is comfort, vacation, fishing, whatever your vacation looks like. Or, or we could say to live is learning, to know more, to explore more, to get more degrees. Or to live is success, to climb the social or corporate ladder. Or to live is helping people, to be involved in activism and justice. And we put something in that blank and say, this is the life. If we look at Paul's life before Jesus, it's hard to know what he would have put in that sentence. To live is blank, but he might have said to live is moral obedience to follow the law of God. That was the summary of his life. Now, uh, now, Paul says to live is Christ. That doesn't mean he disobeys. It just means his obedience must fit inside of that. So he's not rejecting all these other things, family and, and other uh, things that might be good. It's just that these things take a submissive position to Jesus, that we have to hold them with an open hand and have them be willing to be conformed to Christ. Otherwise, those things will become our new God. I think culturally, and sadly even sometimes within Christian circles, the dominant answer to this sentence to live is blank. The dominant way that we tend to fill in that blank, I think, is with love. And so culturally we'd say to live is to love. Just love. That's all you should do. That should be your life. And so then you can hear the implications of those things. One of the biggest ones is the cultural approval then of same-sex uh, relationships. Uh, but they love each other, and love is love. And so it doesn't matter then what God has said about these things. It's easy then for Christians to kind of pick on that issue or target it, where we also have worship forms of love in other ways. And we forget that uh, God's call his main call, the first commandment of God, is not just a generic call to love. The first commandment is to love the Lord 
Not just love broadly, but love God first, that the Lord would be above and before all others, that we put him above and before everything and everyone, even before family, before our spouse, even before our kids and grandkids. Because far too often, people live in a way that their kids are their life. This is a big challenge to us. Uh, We know in the Old Testament, sidestep here, but we'll loop this back in, in Genesis, um, Abraham and Sarah had been trying to have kids for quite some time, uh, for decades even. Sarah was barren, but then God, for reasons untold, God in his providence, according to his purposes, gives them a promise that they'll have a son. And that through this son, Abraham would be made into a great nation, that they'd be blessed by God. And that those people were to be a blessing to the nations. And so then eventually that promise comes true, and they have the son. The child is born, Isaac. And this was God's promise, which is what makes the scene in Genesis 22 so strange. These are the first lines of Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God has just told Abraham to offer his son as a burnt offering. Now, to be clear, child sacrifice is against the law of God. It's in Deuteronomy. It's it's in Leviticus. This is actually in contrast to the surrounding cultures and religions of their day, that they would burn their children sometimes as an offering to their gods. But God said, don't do that. I don't want that to be part of your culture. That is not good. So God here is not actually going to let him burn his child. We know the end of this story is that God provides a ram to be burned instead at the last second as an offering. But this offering here is described as a a testing. He says, I want you to offer, here are all the descriptions, your son, your only son, Isaac, the son of the promise, and then the last one, the one whom you love. God says, Abraham, I want you to be willing to offer him to me. I want you to love me first, before and above everything else, even your own child. Now that may sound strange or even harsh to some of us when we think about it on the front, but there are deeper things here. And God knows, according to his wisdom, some things that we don't. 
God knows that if for Abraham to live is Isaac, if Isaac becomes the summary of his life and his driving passion, that will destroy Abraham. And it will destroy Isaac. Because no one can bear the weight of being the center of another person's universe. It's just too much for us. Only the strong shoulders of God himself can bear that weight. So he doesn't want him to say to live is Isaac, but if for Abraham to live is God or to live is Christ, if God is the summary and driving passion of his life, this will actually not decrease his love for Isaac, but will in the end strengthen his love for Isaac in God. We see that actually played out in the life of Paul. That when these priorities are put in order, that when Paul, by the grace of God, is saying to live is Christ, that Christ is really my driving center and goal, you can see the result in his relation to the Philippians. He doesn't say to live is Christ, and then therefore he rejects or ignores the Philippians. He doesn't say... Don't bother me, I'm busy loving Jesus right now. Instead, by making his life Jesus, it opens him up to greater love for them. He says that even though he desires to depart and be with Christ, and that will be gained, that will be much better for me, I will know Jesus in a richer, fuller way that I can only imagine now. And even though that is a great good, he says that to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. I continue on for your sake, because I want your good because I want your progress, because I want your joy in the faith, because I want you to glory in Jesus when I come to you. What a dramatic impact this has, that Jesus really is a life changer this way, and that powerful, that, that to live is Christ, does not make our world smaller as if we only look at Jesus. But instead, to live as Christ actually makes our world so much bigger. That instead of looking first to our own small interests, to live as Christ means that we're looking after each other's needs. Even from the smallest cuts, like a Band-Aid on the thumb, to helping others walk through cancer. And instead of chasing our own small desires, to live as Christ means that we're caught up in Christ's grand mission and purpose that he would be known throughout the entire world. And instead of burying our heads in, the, in, in our own small lap, to live as Christ means that we actually look up and see him all that he is, all that he does, all that he's made, we lift up our eyes to the hills and the heavens and drink it all in. And we take joy in whatever the Lord takes joy in. That's the life. 
That is real life. And even death itself can never take that away, but will only serve to increase that life. Jesus is worth everything that we are. And when everything is surrendered to him by his grace, it's really true that to live is Christ and even to die is gain. Would you pray with me? Hmm. Lord, uh, even now I feel too small for these things. Would you help us, me and all of us, to desire you for all of your worthiness? Would you help us to submit our competing loves to you? To really take joy in you first, that our general joy would be increased. Help us to trust in you in our life and in death, so that to live for us, to live as Christ and to die is gain. You are a great God, and we do love you and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.